Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. Happy end of August, beginning of September. I hope you had a wonderful summer, although we need to come clean about something. Come clean. It's better to come clean. We're recording this at the end of July for various reasons to get it in the can. It's quite possible that by the time this episode is released, I've been on the front of all the newspapers. I've become a well-known figure the world over. Really? Yes. Because? Well, because we're going to Edinburgh for the festival... My son has become very interested in the Loch Ness Monster, so I've told him that he and I can go away and do a day trip to Loch Ness. And and if we find the Loch Ness Monster, just think of the headlines that's going to generate. What have you said to him about the Loch Ness Monster? I haven't said much. Our next-door neighbour, who is of Scottish origin, says that it eats broccoli and marshmallows. So he's insisting that we pack broccoli and marshmallows to take with us. I don't think we've ever had this discussion, but I found this whole mythology thing quite a dilemma in relation to the Tooth Fairy. You wrote that fictitious news article about the Tooth Fairy. Yes, I did. I did. And, I mean, do you think it's bad that... I mean, what is the ethics here? I'm quite relaxed about it, and I'll tell you for why. Number one, I think myths and stuff are part of human culture. And if you go to Iceland, for example, who seem to do so much right as a society, they uh, are all big on the existence of trolls. Yeah, I know. You asked the Icelandic Prime Minister in a really sort of Paxman-esque way about the trolls. I mean, you asked a number of questions about the trolls, didn't you? Yes. And I also think life is full of lies and disappointments, so maybe there's some kind of lesson there. And, And I think it's quite interesting. There's never a moment when I've said the Tooth Fairy doesn't exist. So they just find it out for themselves. Is that right? I think so. And what, if you're confronted, what do you say? I, I neither, you know, I, I, I neither confirm, confirm nor, nor deny. deny. Yeah. What about when they're like 25? 
I'll, I'll cross that bridge. Okay, well, that's this is good gun. Maybe the Loch Ness Monster is under there, and it just it's just going to take me to get it up to the surface with a piece of broccoli. I mean, look, the American government is taking UFOs more seriously. Have you seen this? No. Yeah. In fact, very recently, the US government has announced a new office for tracking unidentified flying objects. Pentagon officials announced the establishment of the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, AARO. Do you not think stories about UFO sightings and people being beamed up by aliens and probed were rife in our childhood and you don't hear them so much anymore or maybe they just don't get the news coverage they used to yeah i'm not i'm not saying i saying people are being beamed up by things i'm not saying the lot of this monster is real either but anyway look, if you find the not Loch Ness monster yes be good for the podcast honestly it would be really good people won't be saying oh ed miliband's got a podcast they'll be saying oh the Loch Ness monster guy has got a podcast yeah i mean honestly that is your metric for august while we're away, which is to discover, <laughs> to find the Loch Ness Monster. You've set yourself a very good task. My metric is, although it's going to be hard to beat, is to make even better tofu. Now, you sent me a photograph on Saturday night, and Ed, as um, you will have heard, sends me pictures of his various attempts at cooking. It doesn't always go great, especially the photography, whereas this one... Soy glazed tofu with bok choy, I think. It looks great. I showed it to Sarah, who's even snotty about this stuff than I am, and and she thought it looked uh, edible. But, you know, I then posted it on Instagram because I thought it was a bit rubbery, and people had such helpful suggestions. And I want to sort of give a shout-out to Louise Handmaid, who said, have you tried Taifan tofu? Much nicer than other sorts. Doesn't need to be marinating, smoked and flavoured. And I did try that and I cooked it less. And not at all robbery is how it was pronounced by our dinner party guests. That was a hit. So you served this up to people? I did serve it up to people. I mean, of course, you being you then complained on Instagram about not being invited to dinner, which I thought was a trick cheek since you normally say my food looks like prison food. And then you sort of expect a dinner invite for the prison food. But not at all rubbery. A big hit. One step closer to a Reasons to be Cheerful cookbook. Do you think we are really? Yes, I think there are still many, many, many steps ahead of us. We're still at Land's End and we've got to get to John O'Groats. Agreed. Well, so... My metric is cooking yours is a Loch Ness Monster. Shall we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes, this week we are talking about the charity sector. And it is an interesting issue. There are over 163,000 charities in the UK and they play a key role in our society. But they also pick up a lot of slack where government might be failing. We are talking to Daniel King from Nottingham Trent University about what the charity sector is and some of the challenges it faces, to Mita Desai from the Young Trustees Movement about how she's increasing sector diversity through boards, and to Sarah Woodcock, who founded a charity, The Kids Network, to mentor children in London. And it's a really great conversation. I really, I really enjoyed it. What's your reason to be cheerful? Apart from the lot of this monster. My reason to be cheerful is a cookbook that is a, a, oh. a few steps closer than ours. Oh. Do you remember during uh, lockdown me telling you to become obsessed with an Instagram account called Sanjana Feasts? And I was making like lots of Indian food, uh, chilli paneer. I became quite obsessed with perfecting it and she had the best recipe that I found. Ring it a bell? 
Vaguely, yeah. Now, on Twitter this morning, I saw that she is now crowdfunding her first cookbook and I'm going to be pledging immediately after we finish recording because it's so exciting to me that I can have these recipes in a format that it doesn't matter if I uh, if I spill ingredients and splatter what I'm cooking everywhere. And so who should I be following? Sanjana Feasts. S-A-N-J-A-N-A Feasts. Here we are. You got it? Wow, look at this. She's got 140,000 followers. I'm not surprised. Oh, that's more than me. Well, maybe put some more of your um, food photography up there and see what it does for you. I've added 100 followers since the tofu. You'll be interested to hear. Is that right? Yes. You're giving the people what they want. 100 is not that many. but No, but it's an increase, isn't it? So it's yeah. done something to the graph. But, yeah, so Sanjana Feasts, becoming a cookbook, is my reason to be cheerful. And what is yours? Mine is Wordlebot. Ah, you've not mentioned Wordle for a while. Basically, Wordlebot tells you how everyone else has done on Wordle, whether you did good guesses, what your skill level was, what your luck was, oh. what the average was. Honestly, for the nerdy crew amongst us, it's absolutely the business. If you have a New York Times password, wherever you do your Wordle, it'll keep track of it, which I quite like the thought of that too. The Wordlebot is just great. My son and I do the Wordle together. We really love looking at the Wordlebot. It's almost as good as looking at the Wordle. So can you tell us what it is telling you, uh, what statistics it's giving you about your own Wordle performance? My skill levels? Yes. Well, it varies. My rating for yesterday, for the number 400 this was, this was power. My rating out of 100 for skill was 38, whereas the New York Times average was 81, so not so good. My luck was 36 out of 100, where the average was 48, not so good. And how many turns did it take me? Well, I struck out, which is rare for me, and the average was 4.2. I always start with irate. I then did loser, which is a good description of me on this Wordle turn. Um, that was my second guess, and that was a great choice. And I've narrowed it down to 17 possible solutions. Then I did hover. That was tearing it down to 12. It's pretty good. Joker was my next one, and that got naught. Then it was boxer. Then gopher, which actually is a word, but is not one of the 2,309 Wordle solutions. And then I failed. Wow. So as if Wordle wasn't already taken up enough of your time now analysing your own stats on Wordle. It's honestly like icing on the cake. It's nice icing on the cake. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. To start the conversation, we have Daniel King, who is Professor of Organisation Studies at Nottingham Trent University. Hello, Daniel. Hello. And I'd, I'd like to start with an admission. And it is that I've, I don't think I've ever really taken the time to get to grips with the phrase charity sector. So I, I don't really know if it is a catch-all term for everything from Oxfam to somebody rattling a tin outside a church or, or if it is something different to that. So at the age of 49, can you finally educate me? I could actually probably make it even more confusing, Jeff. Okay. So I think, yeah, there's there's continual debate about what is the sector what's its name and it's often different political parties come along and they recreate it as well so it's the voluntary sector then it became the voluntary community sector and now it's the voluntary community social enterprise sector in scotland it's generally called the third sector as well each time you've got different political connotations and the boundaries get redrawn each time as well i mean jeff you may not know this but somebody on this call was the minister for the third sector was it you, Daniel? I don't think it was me, but the 90s are a little hazy. It was me. Are you hanging on in there with third sector, Ed? I don't know. I'm going to be guided by Daniel. The third sector, it seems to me, goes beyond... I mean, my definition would be charities are a subset of the third sector, 
Uh, the third sector also includes social enterprises, which aren't charities, community interest companies, which aren't charities. So, you know, you could talk about the charity sector or you could talk about the third sector. Does that seem right, Daniel? Yeah, very much so. So then you get some organisations that are registered as legal charities. We know there's about 166,000 of those. What we don't know is so much there's what's so-called below-the-radar organisations that fall below the threshold. We also know during you know, the pandemic in particular, lots of mutual aid organisations popped up as well. You know, Do they fit into that definition? Is that helping you, Jeff? It is, but then, then I'm wondering if this answer has been this long, if there might sort of inherently be a, a problem with this word sector in this context well just to add in extra confusion i think and particularly even the, the distinction between the sectors has become much more blurred over time charities working a lot with public sector with private sector organizations so actually the the boundaries between these things i think are even more fluid than perhaps they once were as well and I think what's interesting is, as, as everyone knows, you know, different political parties shape it in different ways. On the basis of that, then the sector sort of redefines and redraws its boundaries each time. And that adds in a whole other layer of confusion. So no simple answer, unfortunately. But then I'm an academic, so I like to make things more confusing. And, and of course, opinions would be different on this depending on where you sat on the political spectrum. But from a progressive point of view, is much of what we're talking about in an ideal world, the underlying problems wouldn't exist or it would be served by the public sector? It's an interesting debate, isn't it? What is the role of the sector? Often it's there filling in gaps. There is an argument, and particularly under the New Labour's time, that it was sort of trying to get to hard to reach communities and make connections in with people there as well. There's tradition of philanthropy, which is sort of a Victorian notion, and mutual aid, which has perhaps got a more progressive communities helping each other um, ideas as well. I mean, many charities exist and they try to do themselves out of business is the ultimate aim, you know, try to eradicate poverty or climate change or whatever. However, interestingly, of course, they're also organisations. And even though they seem to have achieved their mission, then they seem to find other missions and mission drift and other things is seen there. The very few charities say, you know what? we're done. We've achieved everything we want to achieve. We can close down happily. But yeah, I think there's a real big debate of well, what's the purpose of the charitable sector, if we want to give it that phrase, and then actually, should we be trying to eradicate at least the underlying causes that for many of these charities exist, and often it is filling in the gaps where the state has retreated, um, which can be a positive thing, because it can be communal action, but there can be a negative part of that from a progressive point of view as well. Daniel, what are some of the biggest issues facing the sector at the moment? Yeah, so really major challenges. So we did during COVID at Nottingham Trent, working with NCVO and Sheffield Hallam University as well. NCVO is the National Council for Voluntary Organisations, just for those who don't know. That's right, yeah. So we, we did a series of surveys and collecting lots of data. A major one coming out of the pandemic is well-being for the staff and for volunteers. The cost of living crisis is hitting charities very hard. And one of the biggest sets of scandals isn't necessarily financial, though they're the ones that hit the headlines, but lots around diversity um, of boards and actually the internal workings of organisations of, of charities as well. I think there's a sort of a hollowing out and I think there's a real concern we're about to reach another round of austerity and charities often picking up the pieces and we've seen food banks of which obviously have risen enormously but even the resources going into them have been withdrawn so I think there's major challenges on the horizon there. You mentioned scandals in passing there. Has public trust in charities changed at all in the wake of a handful of instances with controversy around things like funding and, and trust? 
The latest surveys that I've seen have actually argued from a public point of view that within charity sectors against other professions, it has actually held up pretty well. But I think there are lots of things we know, Oxfam and Haiti and big international ones through to more local charities and concerns there. At the same time as charities are trying to do lots of work on that, they're being drawn into culture wars and things. So I think they're being fought on on both flanks, which is definitely very challenging, but they represent lots of what goes on in society as a whole as well. So there are major challenges there. How do you think people's attitudes and behaviour change around charities and engagement with them change during the pandemic? Because, you know, one of the things that we really saw during the pandemic was mutual aid. And this wasn't necessarily formal charities, although formal charities also played an incredible role. But did that have an impact, do you think? We've seen a a range of things, like you say, mutual aid organisations popping up. Um, But I think actually to to get to those mutual aid organisations to be able to exist and to be able to function, then they need other more stable organisations able to support them. Certainly in the research that we did at Nottingham Trent, lots of voluntary and community organisations being very quick first responders at times of crisis as well. However, I think that story has disappeared very quickly as well. I mean, doesn't that also illustrate a wider point, which is it's easy to talk about some of the issues that the charitable sector faces, but imagine if it didn't exist. I mean, it makes an extraordinary contribution to our society. It does occupy a space that neither the state nor the conventional for-profit private sector would occupy. Yeah, very much so. And I think that sort of need of response. But there's a double-edged sword on that, I think. I mean, take the example of food banks. Certainly, you know, stopping people starving but at the same time you think well if it didn't exist one argument would be maybe people would become more politically active and engaged because then they'd really see the problems so there is an argument that almost the charitable sector ameliorates issues and it pushes them down but at the same time there can be very specialist um, particular things that the state can't do because of the diversity of society now as well so there's a long argument there that you know, to have a functioning and effective society, it's a much more grassroots responsive thing than maybe a, a top-down state sort of argument as well. Um, but there is an argument that does it lead to ultimately the state feeling as though it can withdraw because other areas will pick it up? So I think, again, this depends slightly on your political persuasion, the position that you might take. What do we learn about people when we look at the difference between the reasons they give for charitable giving versus look at looking at the numbers. So animal charities, they're very high up the list. International aid is surprisingly low down. It's really interesting. There's a number of organisations right now that are trying to make the data about the sector and the effectiveness of organisations much more transparent and much more available to the public. And you think, you know, if we take a rational decision-making point of view, we think, well, actually... When we're looking to where to donate our money, we would look at all of that data. But the evidence seems to be that people just don't. They actually donate because they know somebody with that condition or they know somebody involved in that charity or it's in their local area or anything along those lines. So people are donating because of relationships and connections or a a personal sense of relationship with that rather than trying to think around, okay, which is the most effective and best charity there. So I think most of the evidence seemed to indicate that we donate depending on our own personal emotional response rather than trying to work out financially what is the best option. Um, 
I know a number of organizations are trying to change that agenda. However, how do you capture effectiveness is a really challenging question as well. Now, we've got a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, and as well as a a sort of thriving public and private sector, presumably there'd be a thriving charitable sector. If you were the minister for charity in charge of making sure that happened, what would you want to do? You've got total carte blanche. Jeff's going to be a sort of pretty silent partner. Yeah, if if you set up one of those text donation things, I'll, I'll definitely donate to any charities that. But um, I, I don't want to be hands on. He's not going to micromanage. He's not. Gonna, no, so no. <laughs> yeah, we just want to know what what as a state, what can we be doing if if we were doing the ideal version of supporting the charitable sector? How how would we do it? I think the role should be enabling. I would say, certainly in the current circumstances, as well the culture wars and things like that are not particularly helpful to enable a more functioning charitable sector. I think part of it as well is actually learning the lessons from the pandemic. Enormous amounts of creativity, innovation, lots of local responsiveness has happened. The challenge right now, I would say, is that organisations haven't really got the funds and the resources and able to build on that innovation and creativity that they've been done. So setting up, I mean, a very short term quick fix measure, I think, would be helping organisations that have done lots of innovative, creative things, but maybe don't have the resources to capitalise on that learning and that growth would be a really nice first step. Daniel King, I think you've got the job. Thank you so much for joining us. With us now is Mita Desai, who is Chief Executive of the Young Trustees Movement. Hello, Mita. Hello, Jeff. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. I was about to say, Jeff, that, I mean, it's obviously great we're talking to Mita because we're obviously ideal for the Young Trustees Movement, aren't we? <laughs> Actually, as I'm sure we'll find out later in the the, the podcast, we definitely need um, allies to support and, and those with power to create spaces. So you definitely okay. Are. In this point, the word the word ally is sort of it's sort of yeah. It's, it's <laughs> like you know, it, it kind of launched yes. a thousand ships. I mean, it sort of tells its own story, doesn't it? We're allies. Yes, we were very deftly put in our place there. Yeah, exactly. We need ally. We need old allies. <laughs> well, you'd actually both be very young for boards. Where, where, like, uh... oh, somewhere at last, where I'd feel young. <laughs> no, I was going to say people who are in it, like fifty-five, often bring down the average age of the, age of the board a lot, which says a lot. Yeah, I'm not actually fifty-five. I, I wasn't suggesting that you were. <laughs> I mean, Jeff, Jeff, you know, is even younger. I'm not even in my 50s yet. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> not that we're hung up about it at all, Mita, no. Maybe it's time to redeploy the phrase borderline millennial. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> right, Jeff, go. So, Mita, so all charities have a board of trustees. Mm-hmm. Let's let's just start with the basics. What, what do they do and does it vary a lot from one charity to another? Yeah, great question. So they generally all have the same kinds of themes of, of what a trustee needs to do. It's there to ensure that it's there for public benefit. The buck kind of stops with them. Um, they follow their governing document and law. They're there to ensure that the charity is accountable, it manages its resources appropriately, um, and, and they act with care and skill in order to do it. But how that looks is obviously very different for a, a tiny organisation who has no staff and a massive organisation. For me, I was um, a former young trustee and a young chair, and I went through a big process of being like, oh my goodness, I'm on a board. I'm not good enough to be here. And then I really tried to like fake it till I made it and, and tried to really like try to fit in. And I had this really big awakening where I was like, actually, I don't need to fake it till I make it. I'm already it, <laughs> as many people are. And it's more about bringing my full self, my full curiosity to the role. 
And when I met other young people, particularly on the sharp end of exclusion going on to, into boardrooms, they were facing similar issues. Um, and it made me realize that this was such a systemic problem, um, as well as my own personal experience of once applying to a boardroom um, via public appointments and the feedback of why I didn't get the role was one, because I had like a nervous energy. They said it was kind of like a woman problem, which I was like, what? Um, and then secondly is because I didn't have enough experience. And at this point I had already been chair of a board. So I don't know what more experience they could have asked for. And I would have been fine if young people had been appointed to that board. And it was a real wake up call as to how, how much is wrong with the system. And is is this a demographic problem then? Is this is this across charities? It's boards are full of older people who don't quite know what to make of young people. Absolutely. So less than three percent of trustees are under the age of thirty, while one in twelve trustees are called either John or David. Now I'm not saying that all John or David should quit the boards, but as you can tell that there is just such a huge lack of representation. Um and when we think about what charities are here to do, um, which is that thing around accountability, reflecting the interests of the communities. How can you possibly do that without having your community represented? What do you then know about um, diversity more generally, more broadly across the charity sector? Yeah, so there was a taken on trust report that was conducted in 2017. And we really need more reports like that. That gave us a snapshot picture of where diversity is at. Um but what we know is age is a real indicator of the other things that are failing the sector. Some of the biggest problems around this is recruitment. So a lot of recruitment is done via word of mouth, which is obviously not helpful to diversify your board. And there is also pro real problems in terms of um, ensuring that these are spaces where people can thrive. So there was um, a study conducted by Ecclesiastical, which is a charity insurance company. It found an answer to the question, why did you stop being a trustee to young trustees? 29% said meeting times were inconvenient. 23% said they felt like an outsider and 22% said they felt like their input was no longer valued. So retention is a real issue here as well. I used to speak to these incredible young people that had so much to offer these boards um, and they'll be saying things to me like, I'm thinking of leaving my board because I don't think I'm good enough to be here. I have such imposter syndrome. Um, and I feel like I'm a burden on the organization. And I would hear that story again and again and again. It used to break my heart and looking at them and just thinking, you are incredible. You are so needed in that space. And it's more than imposter syndrome. It's a case of you not having training, you not having colleagues who are supporting you in this space. There's clearly a sort of reluctance to take young people on as trustees. But how much of it do you think might be young people being reluctant to come forward? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's a huge confusion as to like what a trustee actually does. There's this idea that trustees are some sort of like magical people that somehow possess all of the knowledge and insights to be able to act as a trustee properly, when really it's just a bunch of people doing the best they can with the information in front of them. Their role is not to know the whole law, to know everything. It's about having that curiosity that skill of curiosity to ask questions to, that enables that collective accountability. And when we phrase it like that, young people are like, oh, I thought you had to be like a retired person to be a trustee. Yeah, no, I can definitely do that. 
And what we know is that people often say to us like, oh, young people don't want to be on the board. They'll find this stuff boring. Um, but there are a huge amount of young people already who want to be trustees and not enough trustee vacancies. Having young people on boards, often they've been there for like two months, said three words, and everyone is raving about the impact of having young people on boards. And that's where our biggest um, people who are against young trustees are not actually against young trustees. They were against the barriers and overcoming them um, have made them the biggest advocates for the work that we do. How do you deal with that problem of young trustees sort of being sidelined as either an advocate for or you know, responsible for their particular identity and being just put into that box? We see that all the time and that's where people get really burnt out. So for instance, with the, the Black Lives Matter movement, people have rightly realised they need to have more black people represented on their boardroom. What is completely inappropriate is if a bunch of non-black people turn to the black people in the room and say, how do we change institutional racism against black people? That's obviously like, they'll probably have better ideas than everyone else in the room, but one, that's a burden that is not their responsibility. They should get an external consultant to do that. But also that's not their role as a trustee. Sometimes people who are doing this stuff and experiencing that in day in, day out, don't want to do that stuff and it's also in particular reference to young people we see people put in boxes of say like oh I'm a dinosaur in social media like you manage our up-and-coming trends again that is not making the most of the of the potential of young people to contribute as a full trustee in the full sense. You're aiming to have doubled the number of young trustees on charity boards by 2024 mm -hmm. um, how doable is it? Well, uh, it depends on a, a number of factors. So for for just general organisations that are charities that are not managed by public appointments, it's actually quite easy because if we can get those people into a room, those people become allies. Where it is difficult is the organisations who are managed by public appointments because currently the practices there are just so exclusionary. It blocks young people and wider diversity being on that board. Within public appointments, there is something called due diligence. And due diligence, ministers and people can stop the appointment of someone if they're seen to be an embarrassment to, to the government. And if we deep dive into what that means, that can be anything as like posting something that is critical to the government, they're blocked. I remember one of your episodes about how there can be like greater decolonization within museums. When we think about the kind of person who works in decolonisation and will have that much needed perspective to, say, be a charity trustee on museums, and you think about Boris, who says stuff like, the problem is not that we were once in charge, but that we are not in charge anymore, it, you're probably going to be critical of that. But then you publicly saying you're critical of that, your, your appointment is going to get blocked due to due diligence. So it's almost like a set of rules designed for a different era. Listen to everything you've said. I'm trying to, and it's not as easy as it once was, get into the head of somebody under 30 listening to this episode. Mm -hmm. I've heard a lot about how this sector is, is set up to, to make it difficult for young people to be on boards and, and it, the, the work that you're doing to change that. Why Why would I want to become a trustee? How, how do you persuade people to even think about it, given the amount of obstacles? So the first thing is is just knowing your, your worth and your value on a board um, and knowing all that you have to contribute. And then once you've got past that right, the next question is, like, why would you want to be on a board? It's just an incredible experience to to act in like senior management and make decisions. It's just incredible for your career. And it's also just such a rewarding opportunity to give back to your communities. 
And I think once you realize like nobody really knows what they're doing and you're just in that, you develop the muscle of being able to navigate uncertainty is such a powerful skill. If you're somebody who's running a charity and you think, oh, crumbs, Amita's got a point here. Uh, we've got young people on the board, but we don't use them properly or we're a bit, um, we're a bit sort of Jeff and Ed demographic. Um, uh, the sort of demographic who uses the phrase oh crumbs <laughs> yeah exactly oh, exactly um what can they do yeah great question first of all i would celebrate asking that question because it takes some discomfort to say we need to change things and i'm willing to change things we have a monthly free training where all charities can come to um and and just get the basics on like what they can do next um and what's really exciting about this work is it can lead to such amazing long-term change and it can be done under any budget we have a training and matching program that matches young trustees to boards um, that gives the board the training that they need to do to enable perspectives. Charity Tinder. Charity Tinder. Maybe we should rename it to that. I mean, honestly, it would get it would get attention. I'm going to invite you to our next marketing meeting, Ed. It's going to be big. It all started here in this virtual room. <laughs> well, listen, Mita Desai, you've spoken brilliantly about this issue. Jeff and I are allies. Yes. Even if we can't be young trustees, we are definitely allies. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you so much for being champions. And if I give a bit of a call to action there, Ed, we need cross-party support on, on reforming public appointments. Jeff, please do continue to put this on the agenda. And uh, everyone listening, please join the movement. We need you to create change. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. To continue the conversation and talk about what all this means in practice, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Sarah Woodcock, who is founder and CEO of the Kids Network. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ed. I think we should sort of talk about our connection because... Uh, we met through an interesting route. I was walking on the street in 2015 uh, after having lost the general election, come back from Australia, keeping myself to myself. I met uh, Joe Kenyon, who people will know from the end of the show. He helps us produce it. He recognised me and he said, oh, I've just started going out with someone called Sarah. Would you mind doing a video for her? Just ruined my street cred off the bat there. I know. I thought the video was a clincher, was a clincher for the relationship. Sarah, that's how Joe tells it to me, you see. I have to say it was the romantic gesture that really um, cemented the relationship, but it was our second date of the hour. What could be more romantic? Yeah, exactly. Now, anyway, that's all out of the way then. Um, 
T- tell us a little bit about your background before we get into what the Kids Network does and your story. Sure, yeah. So I am a born and bred Londoner, first and foremost. Um, I grew up in Hounslow, West London, and I grew up in a low-income household. I was the first person in my family to go to university. And I think I had a lot of kind of challenges in terms of really finding my place. I think London's an amazing place for opportunities, but not everyone has access to those in the same and equal way. So there was a real kind of divide and a lack of belonging, I felt, I think, since I was a child really growing up here. Um, And I think those early experiences really shaped my desire to get into the charity sector, the not-for-profit sector, and really to support children to be able to live the lives that they deserve in the best way possible. And tell us how the Kids Network came about. It wasn't necessarily a light bulb moment, but a multitude of factors that came together at at, um, a significant time. I think I was working for some of the big charities in the sector, playing quite a small role in these big machines of producing really incredible impact, both in the UK and also globally. Um, But actually feeling like I didn't have much connection to my community. I couldn't see the direct impact of the work that I was doing. And also there being a real gap for children at this critical age. I think there's a lot of services for teenagers and older young people to get into higher education, to get into employment. But actually there weren't many organizations looking to support children early on in those formative stages. Uh, So it was a real kind of simplistic approach in terms of people living side by sides in communities that were experiencing massive gentrification and movement and connecting them with children at this critical age to form a beautiful connection uh, which has a long-lasting change on both the mentor and the child's life in a kind of volunteering mentoring relationship so that was kind of the idea and and how it came about. And, and when you look at the Sarah who thought I'm, I'm going to set something up do you see somebody who's naive and you think, how on earth did, did I do that? Were you aware of how challenging it would be or was it kind of as you, you would have expected it to be? Well, I suppose, Jeff, going back to my earlier point of never feeling like I belonged, I, I always felt like there was a fake it till you make it type attitude. And I set the Kids Network up when I was 25. I'm now 33. And as a, <laughs> a younger person, I really felt like I could take on this challenge and really thought in terms of step by step how I would do that. There wasn't um, this kind of thought process of how we can make ripple effects across London. We're now supporting 600 children across seven London boroughs. I get asked a lot as a founder, how do you set up a charity? I want to do this amazing thing. And there's lots already going on and it's a difficult road to travel and lots of obstacles along the way. Um, but it, it, yeah, it, it was something that I didn't think too much about and has just evolved and grown organically ever since, really. And just tell us a little bit more, Sarah, what the nature of the, because I think it is interesting for people, what the nature of the relationships are that Kids Network forms between mentors and mentees. So we work with children aged 8 to 11, so they're primary school aged children, and they come from low-income backgrounds themselves. They might have experienced adverse childhood events, so that could be domestic violence or a bereavement in the family, um, or it could be that they just don't have that one-to-one support at home because parent or caregiver is working multiple jobs, they're one of many siblings. So we match them with a volunteer mentor who is outside the school, outside the home, who's in that community that has one-to-one sessions with them that is child-led. 
And that's really important for us that the child has a voice and has something to say about their their own life, their, their decision making. I think at that age, a lot of children have never made a decision in their life before. Um, so we match them with a volunteer. So it's one session a week, which can be one to three hours, depending on the activity. So that could be anything from kind of a walk in the park to drinking hot chocolate to visiting a museum. So it's really um, up to the child. And it's about fostering their sense of self, their identity, building their voice, their decision making capabilities, their ability to identify and manage their emotions. And they build a relationship over the course of the year. And it's a real kind of double benefit for our volunteers too. Uh, our volunteers are a real diverse diverse range of people um, come from all different professions, walks from life. Um, and we've, we've really seen that it's boosted their mental health, their communication skills, their problem solving skills. Uh, and it's been, yeah, definitely a double benefit in terms of um, transforming the way that they look at their communities too. And when you think about those plans for the Kids Network, is it confined to London? Is it something that you would like to expand to other uh, cities and towns? Or is it something perhaps where you feel that you'd be best of use collaborating with uh, similar charities that could be established in other places? We know that the challenges children are facing in London are not unique. Um, almost one third of children live in poverty in the UK. And that presents multiple challenges, not just in the material things they, they don't have, but also those life experiences, those positive interactions with a trusted role model. So we are looking at other areas of expanding the kids network to support children in different communities um, and know that there are many more people that would love to get involved and volunteer across the UK. So really excited to be looking into that. Something we've not really touched on yet is when charities end up perhaps picking up the slack of what government isn't doing. And of course, uh, you know, under David Cameron, there was the, the idea of the big society and then you saw the the kids company the charity the kids company fold which leaves this gaping hole in children's services across london what what are your thoughts on that that sometimes there is this 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 pressure on charities to do the work of government We've seen our services in the last two years increase by 245%. So we've seen referrals increase by 245% for children that need additional support. And whilst I think there have been some great initiatives, there's still a lot more on the ground uh, that we need to contend with. And I think particularly schools are working on budgets that are in increasingly shrinking. Um, similarly with charities as well, I think we're expected to do double the amount with half the budget. And I think there's a really interesting statistic that 22% of charities are making a loss on statutory funded contracts. So we're having to pick up the slack and look for funding in other places as well. So it means a lot of our time is running around chasing funding to um, ensure that our services are running to a really high quality. And what we do is incredibly risky, right? We're matching children in the community with strangers. So our safeguarding and our processes and procedures and all those operations need to be really tight. So I think there needs to be a lot more funding um, and a lot more recognition and trust put back into communities and charities for the work that we're doing at the grassroots level that perhaps those kind of more institutionalised services aren't able to, to meet or reach. Where does your money come from? Mm. So the majority of our funding is, is trusts and foundations based. So some of those really kind of traditional bodies, which have been great for us, but have a one to three year life cycle quite often. So 
Uh, we're trying to move away from being solely trust and foundations based, but being a small charity means that we don't have the infrastructure to, to build uh, regular donations from the public in a way that perhaps one of the bigger charities could do with their advertising and TV and, and brand presence. That leads us on very neatly to just talking about what it's like being a small charity, the sort of advantages, disadvantages. Are you wanting to try and become bigger, you know, world domination? Uh, <laughs> what, what, how do you think about that? During COVID, we were able to respond within two weeks of the pandemic hitting to, to continue to support the children that we do. A lot of schools closed. A lot of people were trying to reshuffle their services, but our mentors were still able to turn up week on week. And we were able to keep those children safe throughout that time and really support and protect their mental health. And I think that's one example of where small grassroots charities can really thrive with their dynamism and um, ability to reach those families and communities. Um, in terms of our growth, we really want to be able to step up to meet the need of the children that we're seeing coming through. And to do that, we need more volunteers and we need more funding. So we are looking for, for new volunteer mentors to come and join our community. So if you are based in London, please do. And on those volunteers, what kinds of things do you hear about why they do it and what they get out of it? Hmm. We've got a real mix of volunteers. So people that are born and bred London that know what it's like to grow up in London and want to give back. And then on the flip side, we have a big international community and people that come to London from all over the UK. They're feeling lonely and isolated themselves and really want to understand what it's like to, to grow up in London. So those are the two kind of motivating reasons. Um, and I think... People's expectations sometimes when they come to, to volunteer with us might be that they're, they're working with this child. There's a bit of a white savior mentality sometimes in, in some aspects and wanting to do good. And quite quickly, they understand that these children have a lot to say for themselves. They're very confident. They have a voice. They just need that space to express themselves. And it becomes a lot more about listening and that, that two way street in terms of sharing that experience. And we find volunteers that we start off with are very different to the end of the year process and that they're more motivated to make change in their local communities after that. To end on on brand, Sarah, maybe ours, but also yours. You know, you you must hear lots of very difficult stories about young people facing poverty, great inequality, got a cost of living crisis. On what keeps you optimistic about the work you do, and maybe also about the charity sector more generally? What keeps me optimistic is the children that we support. Every time that I meet a child, I just feel uplifted about the future and how much I learn from them as well, how much they have to teach us, how much passion and fire they have for making the world a better place in their own communities. And then in terms of the charity sector, I think there's a lot of uh, collaboration and coming together now. I think historically there's been a a lots of competition for funding, quite rightly, those scarce resources. But I think... Um, through the pandemic and through some really important campaigns, we've seen people wanting to collaborate and share common goals in terms of how we move the needle for the next generation and children and young people to come. Well, look, Sarah Woodcock, I know your work. It's incredibly inspiring to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Jeff. Well, what did you think? I really enjoyed it. I mean, I really appreciated Daniel laying it all out for us. And I felt both Sarah and Mita were inspiring, um, especially on Mita's subject of boards, which I'd not really thought about. Just generally, what freshness of thought and youth can offer and all the barriers that exist and just Mita's way of approaching that and saying, well, 
this isn't a reason why not. It's a reason to remove the barrier. And I really enjoyed that way of thinking. And I'd forgotten that. I must have skipped this chapter of the unauthorised biography, but I'd forgotten that you were a third sector minister and you'd work with charities. I, I liked hearing you talk about that. Honestly, it was an incredibly inspiring job and the range of things they did. I mean, the things I was interested in when I was a minister was giving more. Governments tend to fund charities in the most kind of appallingly short-termist way. And so the big demand was around what's so-called three-year funding so that you don't fund them for six months or one year. You fund them for three years so they've got some stability. I think recognising the diversity of charity and not trying to pigeonhole them, so not government not trying to control them and say, you must do this, but giving them their latitude. But I think what was great about this conversation was both Sarah and Mita, in a way, giving us two sides of the same coin, which is the way that charities are not just about the so-called great and the good, that young people can make huge contribution to charities, both as trustees or someone like Sarah who founded a charity and the sort of vibrancy. And so, you know, in a way, part of the point of this episode is thinking about charities beyond maybe a conventional stereotype, which I actually don't think does reflect the reality, to be honest, and appreciating the diversity and the vibrancy that charities have and can offer and, and indeed that they can do more of with the right support and encouragement. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Time for us to go now. It is. And now that we're back, we should remind people that we'd love to hear from you. Please send us uh, your thoughts on the episode, on ideas for future episodes, on any of the uh, issues trivial or weighty that are covered in the time we spend together you can email us through the website cheerfulpodcast.com and that's what robert has done and he says uh, i came to the podcast late so i'm still playing catch up but i've been blown away by most of the subjects and the range blown away, blown away says robert definitely yes. worth reading out this email yeah. he says i've been blown away by most subjects and the range of perspectives presented on each i would love to see a lot of the issues stroke policies implemented in the UK, would Jeff be willing to put forward his top 10, 15 or 20 policies for implementation within the Jeffocracy when it's fully established in 2024? You could do an episode where the Jeffocracy manifesto is launched, uh, which would stray from your normal format, but would be worth a listen. Well, honestly, uh, it's great. I mean, you've worked on this kind of thing. Should every idea be in the manifesto or should I keep it simple? Should I keep it stuff that I can put on a pledge card? Mm, Interesting idea. We need a catchy slogan. Things can only get Jeffer. It's a good starting point. No bad ideas in brainstorming and all that. Exactly. Lloyd? Again? Should we take it under advisement what your slogan should be? I think so. Maybe uh, between now and the next episode, I can do my homework and have a look at some great sort of election or manifesto slogans of the past and see if I can uh, um, hijack them in any way for the Jeffocracy. Let us face the Jeff. Mm. Needs work, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and I will put in the works. I really like the idea. Thank you, Robert. Shall we thank our guests? Yes. Thanks to Daniel King, Mita Desai and Sarah Woodcock. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer uh, produces all the content, books all the guests, and she's supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed, composer music. Our idents were made by James Deacon, and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Loch Ness monster spying. He's been rubbery tofu frying. 
And these have been reasons to be cheerful. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.